But gratitude doesn't work like that. Gratitude is like love. If you love somebody or you love something unconditionally, you will always love them irrespective of what they do. Say, even if it's something you don't like or you're upset about, you will still love them. Gratitude is the same way. We have to have this unconditional gratitude. We have to be able to be just as happy about winning the lottery as we are for the person that cuts us off in traffic and gives us a finger. Mm -hmm. And for most people, they just go through and cherry pick the things they like, agreeable for only those things. But that's not how real gratitude is. You have to have 360 degrees of gratitude and be able to see the opportunity within the hardship. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize, to understand that with knowledge comes responsibility. In today's episode, we are joined by Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Marcus is the best-selling author of The Gift of Diversity, an international keynote speaker, TEDx speaker, and the host of the number one new and noteworthy Epic Achiever podcast. He's also a mindset coach to CEOs, leaders, and entrepreneurs. Marcus suffered a severe spinal injury while training for deployment in the U.S. Army. It left him paralyzed from the neck down, and the doctors told him he, they couldn't tell him if he could walk again or not. And from there, his story takes a turn that many of us don't have to even contemplate for most of our lives. What it's like to lay in bed and wait for the end, for lack of a better term. And so from that, Marcus's story is one of why he is, the, in many ways, why he has reframed his experiences the way he has, why he talks about the gift of diversity so much. And in this episode, we unpack much of what Marcus has done, the deep work to understand what is fulfilling for him and how he has then channeled this second chance to help others. Some highlights from this conversation is being born with the name Marcus Aurelius and how that was given to him and in general being worthy for it. The power of mindset and seeking to execute because motivation is simple part. Execution is where people fall short or just don't go that far. The power and crucible and turning your adversity into a gift as the title says and not cherry picking your gratitude. Marcus is very clear that a lot of us go through life and are grateful for things and it's like skipping through a flower bed and like everything's wonderful. But reality, you have to be really clear about what you're grateful for and be honest about it. Go deeper. And lastly, we talk about facets of leadership that are not normally talked about. You know, the internal dynamics, the harder stuff. It's very interesting. And a lot of this is motivating people to whatever it is inside of you that you want to go do whatever that is whatever calls you and lights that fire inside of you you should be orienting yourself to do it don't wait around to say well i need to figure out this or i need to wait till x amount of money happens that's not going to help you there's always going to be something else that gets in your way and for me talking to someone like marcus truly is a treat and i take away so much from this episode and just kind of blown away that he would give me his time and with that everyone please enjoy Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. My name is Eric Wenzel, as always, and today we're actually joined by Marcus Anderson. Hi, Marcus. 
Hey, how are you? Good. This is awesome. Friday for me up here in the cold Chicago Midwest. This is awesome for just taking the time to sit down and have a conversation with me. If you want to just kind of jump into your background or at least professionally, and then we can take it from there. Absolutely. My full name is Marcus Aurelius Anderson. I am an international keynote speaker, best-selling author of the book, The Gift of Adversity. And then I'm also a coaching consultant for high-level CEOs, multi-million dollar companies. And uh, I also have my own podcast. Uh, it's the number one new and noteworthy podcast called Conscious Millionaire Epic Achiever. And the, the commonality and all of the things that I talk about is this idea that adversity is a gift. So even with my podcast guests, I have people on there that have been endured tremendous amounts of hardship. But what I have found in my experience and those of others is that the people that have reached the pinnacle of their professional or their personal lives are the ones that have been able to endure and actually propel themselves from what that adversity is and use mm -hmm. it as a catalyst to make them better. So that's, that's what I do. I'm on the road speaking a lot. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on, you know, on shows a lot or doing shows a lot as well. So I'm really, really consider myself very, very lucky to have a, an opportunity to do this now. As we know, with my background, I, there was a, a point where to me, this is a second chance. So I feel very much this need to sort of give back and I feel very compelled to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, how I found your, your, your story at least was through initially your TEDx talk, as you'd mentioned, and you know, coming through a story as intense as that, and obviously TED Talk is very condensed for a story of that nature. It reminds me of like, I recently listened to an, a separate podcast with Rick Eilis, who was on the flight that uh, landed in the Hudson River. Mm. And he, he came out with a really short TED Talk along the same lines. It was like five things I learned while my plane crashed. And basically he said the same words is like, I got to reevaluate my life as I thought I was going to die. And then he didn't obviously. Mm. And it sounds really similar to that and the way at which like the stoicism, like it, it's a sense of calm that you really portray when you say these things, which is, is really interesting. Is that something that's always been with you or is this because of the experience that you had, which we're going to unpack next? It's a, uh, it's interesting. I've, I've been doing martial arts since I was 11 years old. Okay. So I very much had that, this idea of Zen and, and Taoism and, and Buddhism and stoicism was all really, baked into me. My, my grandfather named me Marcus Aurelius mm -hmm. because he, it, I was born on his birthday. And when my father called him, he says, you know, dad, it's, you know, we have a child. And he said that he wanted him to name him. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, I want him to name him something strong like Marcus. He said, like Marcus Aurelius. And then <laughs> he says, like Marcus Aurelius. He said, well, no, no, that's what we want to do. Uh, so having that moniker branded upon you is very interesting because as a child, there's no way for you to really fathom what that means. No. Um, but for me, what happened was I, I had that kind of in, in my DNA as it were, and I've been doing martial arts, like I said, my whole life. But as you get older and as you go through high school and you go through college and you start experiencing parts of the real world, some of that stuff becomes clouded. Some of it becomes, you know, a little bit more watered down. And so my experience and my kind of rebirth in the military really was my opportunity to, to re-engage in that, mm -hmm. that stoic flame, that, that warrior spirit that, that I, I always had, but I hadn't been able to cultivate as much as I'd like to. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was in chiropractic school when I was 38 and I was about a year and a half away from finishing my doctorate. But, you know, like I say in the TEDx talk in this life, there's what we hope will happen. There's what we fear will happen. And then there's what actually happens. 
Wow. So for, for the choice of going to the military, that's, and even, I mean, just having a name like yours does where I guess maybe when you were born, it wasn't so prevalent as it is today with how kind of resurgence of stoic philosophy, but the, it has to put a weight on your shoulders to some degree, at least as you start to understand what the name means for certain people. Did that like weigh on you up until you had like the, the chance to kind of reconnect to it? Yeah, the, there was a lot of gravity in the name. And as they would explain it to me when I was younger, they said, you know, he was an emperor. Well, I didn't know what that was at eight years old. <laughs> so the closest thing that they could get was like the semblance of a king or even a president, which even then I, I understood that, you know, here I am, this little boy, there's no way I'm, I'm that, nor did I think that I ever would be. So as a young age, I just went by the name Mark, M-A-R-C. For a long time, because even Marcus seemed to have so much momentum into the rest of the name. So mm-hmm. it was very difficult to really get to that. And I didn't even start using Marcus until, um, you know, high school and college. But then when I got back and when I got into the military and after I kind of had an ex- that experience, when I was given sort of a second chance, I figured that I should just embrace it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And, and again, the, the timing of things unfold in interesting ways. So the timing was, was good, but at the same time, it was, uh, I'm not worthy of the name, mm-hmm. but I endeavored, but I do everything in my life to be worthy and endeavor to, to, to have that name mean something and, mm-hmm. and to bring it, you know, what, what it should. Yeah. It, it's definitely something that's not everyone has to deal with it. Right. Most of the time people just have a name and it's just their name, right? It doesn't have an associated meaning to it. And that is, something I, I, it's hard to contextualize how to, you know, grapple with something like that. And one of the things that as a common theme with this podcast of mine is because I have a lot of friends of mine who are connected to the military and in many ways it is a crucible or a rebirth in some ways. Was it the military a choice for you going right out of high school? Was that? No, I, I did what a lot of people do. I, I went to high school and I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that uh, you know, I'm 47. So mm-hmm. my father's answer was he had a degree, he worked in petroleum and his answer was, okay, the more education you have, the more of a chance you have an opportunity professionally. So he was constantly, you know, get a four year degree and then try to find something to specialize in. So I kicked around in different ideas. I initially was thinking about getting a degree in philosophy. Then I thought about getting a degree in criminal justice. And I, I, I was preparing for a, a fight, as a matter of fact, an MMA fight, and I'd injured my shoulder and I was trying to still work out and lift weights. And when I'm in, in the gym, there's a guy that I can see kind of watching my my posture and my lack of range of motion when I'm trying to, to lift weights. And he comes over to me and he says, how long has that been hurting you? And uh, he strikes up a dialogue and he gives me a card and he's, he's a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of smirk and I was like, oh, you know, a wish doctor, a bunch of smoke and mirrors, right? <laughs> And, and he looks at me and he says, come see me Monday. And if I don't fix you, you don't have to pay for it. And I said, I'll see you Monday morning, doc. So we, I go in there, he examines me, examines my spine, takes x-rays, does the full workup and adjusts my spine. And then my shoulder, the humerus, the main bone there had gone AI, we call it anterior and inferior. And it's just from throwing thousands and thousands of punches. Mm-hmm. So it was not completely dislocated. It was sub-dislocated. Sub-lux is what it means in Greek. So he adjusted it. Uh, it sounded like a gun going off. Wow. And almost immediately I had 
pretty much 80% full, you know, range of motion. And so I'm just looking at him flabbergasted. I'm like, okay, how did you know to do that? how did you know what it was? You know, blah, 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 blah. And he says, you know, I'm getting ready to go to lunch. Let's go have some lunch and we'll talk about it. And he explained to me like this holistic mentality of chiropractic mm-hmm. and the philosophical ideals. And they very much align with what the martial arts had always done. And, and again, let stoicism as well. All these ideas of blending with nature, not fighting it, trying mm-hmm. to understand what it's showing you. And so he said, you know, you would be a great chiropractor. He says, you're physical, you're in great shape. You're, you know, you have the right philosophical ideology. And I said, well, that sounds awesome, doc. So how long does it take? Is it like a weekend seminar or something? <laughs> and he says, no, it's an actual doctorate. And he asked me what I was, you know, majoring in. Mm-hmm. So literally everything that I had taken up to that point, I was going to have to just essentially let that kind of rot on the vine as it were. And I'll go 180 and start taking chemistry and anatomy and biology and all these sciences that I really had no interest in. But in order to get to this, this higher level, mm-hmm. it was the uh, part of the idea for me. What happened was, and I hope everybody listens to this. We can only prioritize so many things in our lives. And I had gotten married when I was in my, I'd been married for a couple of years. And when I, I started going to chiropractic school in Kansas City, I eventually transferred to the school in, in, at Life University in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And again, I lost a lot of my credits because I transferred schools. But again, in my mind, it's worth it because this is an investment. And this is the best school in the world. And if I want to be the best I possibly can, this is where I should be. But what I had done is I was taking 25 hours of doctorate level courses. In addition to that, I was take, I was a bartending about 40 hours a week. Wow. So there was very little sleep for me. There was very little rest. And, you know, four hours of sleep a night is not good for us, obviously, we know. Mm-hmm. And then what little free time I did have, whatever crumbs were left from that main meal, I would put into my relationship in my mind it was because well if i continue to do the right things for the right reasons and this was for us to you know have a family i only have a year and a half till i'm done i can just push through this but what happened was because i prioritized those things it may be inadvertently deprioritize my relationship mm. so i come home one day you know she wants a divorce and my marriage falls apart and I take full responsibility for that because that was my fault. Not long after that, my great uncle, who was my biggest male role model outside of my father, he had been in special forces. He had served in Vietnam. He was in long range reconnaissance control, you know, drop behind enemy lines, all the the stuff that you read about. Mm -hmm. He had passed away and this happened. I'm 38 at this time. So that was a very devastating one, two punch from life. And I had always had an excuse not to join the military. And here I am, 38 years old, no family. If I went active as in the military mm-hmm. and I knew that my window was closing. So I go out and, and during my, my great uncle's funeral, he was, he had all this incredible valor. So I'm there, I'm a pallbearer and the, they have a full bird colonel that eulogizes him. Mm-hmm. And then they have man after man that goes up, <clears throat> pardon me, and talks about how he did this and how he saved this person and how he changed this. And basically each person going up to talking about how, how, how much power he had. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty good. I, I, I kept it all together until they started playing taps. And then I'm sitting next to my great aunt 
and they're playing taps and I can like feel my body start to shake and they start folding the flag up into the triangle and the color guard comes over and they walk, they march over methodically, slowly right face. And then they hand the flag to her and they say, thank you for your sacrifice. We are sorry for your loss. And I just lost it. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I wanted to see if I could join. So then that following week, I go talk to a recruiter to see what the age limit is. And he says 35. And so I go to turn on my heel and leave. He said, how old are you? And I said, 38. And he says, well, come back and talk to me. And uh, very gruffly, I explained to him that, listen, if this isn't going to happen, don't even waste my time. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, what's your motivation? I explained to him kind of what I explained to you. He asked me if I was smart. And I said, well, I'm talking to a recruiter at 38 years old. You tell me if that sounds smart to you. Uh, um, <laughs> but what he was alluding to was he was asking how, how do I think I would do on an ASVAB? Yeah. So I already had a degree in human biology and then I was earning that doctorate. So I did, I, I crushed the ASVAB. He asked me how physically, uh, you know, he says, it looks like you're in good shape. I, I said, well, I'm, I'm in good shape for a civilian, but I don't know what the military conditions like. I did the PT test for them and I, I maxed it out for my age range. Mm-hmm. So here I am, 38 years old, natural leader, really intelligent as far as the military is concerned, in great shape as far as the military is concerned. And he goes to tell me, he says, well, with the army, the great thing about this is you get to choose your MOS. Mm-hmm. You get to choose your degree. I mean, you, you get to choose what, whatever job you're qualified for, you can actually choose it. And he goes through and he pulls out two or three papers. I mean, you know, it has like all these incredible degrees. I mean, all these incredible MOSs that I can choose from. And like the very first page is like all these things where I'll get all this advanced education. You know, I'll be top secret level clearance. I'll be allowed to have this, this experience for four years in the military. When I go into the civilian sector, I'll have the GI bill. In addition to that, I'll have four years of experience and I can go directly into this very well paying, you know, occupation if I so choose. Mm-hmm. And I say, yeah, yeah, that sounds great, but I know what I want to do already. <laughs> and he says, Oh, what do you want to do? And I said, infantry. And he sort of chuckles and he's like, you don't get it. He says, you can do whatever you want. And he goes back and forth and explains to me all these different things. And I said, you know what, Sergeant, you don't get it. This is what I want. And if I don't get this, then I'm just going to walk out. So again, we go back and forth for a while. Eventually he just grabs the age waiver and he signs it and he says, Hey man, it's your life. And he slides the age waiver over to me and I sign it. And six months later, I'm getting off the bus at Fort Benning, Georgia in infantry school, getting yelled at by guys in brown hats that are younger than me and competing and competing against guys that are half my age, literally guys that are young enough to be my sons. And that was my crucible. That was my gift of adversity, or at least the the beginning stages of it. Mm -hmm. And that was my opportunity to really, you know, see, Hey, did I make a mistake? Is, is my body going to hold out? How am I going to do against guys that are half my age? Mm -hmm. And, but the advantage that I had was my mindset, my mentality. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was a game. I knew that if my body didn't fail me within the first couple of weeks, because this is in 2011. So, this is back when infantry school was very, let's just say demanding. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that they, they were not watering down anything and they, there was a lot of push there. So they want to weed out as many people as they can, as quickly as they can. So there were younger guys than me that were breaking their ankles during, you know, ruck marches or wow. getting, getting compression fractures in the pelvis because they weren't conditioned for the amount of 
impact, weight that we were carrying, et cetera. You know, people breaking, dislocating their shoulders or breaking their wrists when they fall down on it, you know, doing things. Mm-hmm. And so if that could happen to them, then the peril could absolutely happen to me. But after a couple of weeks, I really started, you know, my body and I, I trained like crazy before I got into it because in my mind, I expected it to be very much like, you know, full metal jacket. So that's what I was preparing <laughs> myself for. So physically, once I was there and I saw that my body wasn't going to fail me, uh, my belief just skyrocketed and I exploded through the rest of the, of the training. Wow. That's, that's a huge jump. And especially just being able to, to have the decisiveness to say, this is what I'm going to do without any sort of, you know, usually around by the time you hit like 35 or 40 people kind of say like, Nope, the body can't really handle this anymore. And (laughs) and to have that amount of decision that, okay, every, by all measure, it looks like I'm fine and I can kind of do this. And then to then be thrown in with, you know, people who are half your age is, it has to be such a culture shock, not to mention being yelled at by people half your age as well. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's definitely a test in humility. And yeah, and that's, and that's what it was. I mean, you have to understand that for anything that we want to do, there is only one degree of commitment Mm -hmm. and that is, and that is total. So, so many people now want to do this for a little while and then they don't put enough time into it. And then all of a sudden they don't feel the rewards. So they skip that and they jump to the next thing and then they jump to the next thing. But through the martial arts and throughout my life, I, I was in a generation that grew up without, I was a last generation that grew up without the internet, without a cell phone. I didn't yep. get those until I was in my mid twenties. So I'm very grateful to have had that, that work ethic, that, that ethos of self-control, perseverance, indomitable spirit, humility, loyalty, conviction of victory, all those things were put into me. And that really is what allowed me to have that advantage when I was facing those, those hardships. Because uh, again, when you're there and you're not getting a lot of sleep or, yeah. or food or water, you really start asking yourself, it's like, what man, did I make a mistake? Mm-hmm. And then but here's go ahead. the beauty, but the beauty of it is, is this adversity doesn't offer you any other choice. Mm-hmm. And, and when there's no other choice, the choice is simple. For me, it was about committing. It was not trying to do something half in half measure. And I attacked it with everything that I had. So that way, if something did happen, I was like, well, I will never wonder what if. I know that I gave everything I could. If I didn't make the cut or if I got recycled or if I got broke, then that was it. And at least at that point, you know, that's what I did is I was able to push through. So Mm -hmm. I consider myself very lucky to have had that. It it reminds me of the idea, you know, there's no way out but through. And it's, you know, what, what, <laughs> what's going Robert to break Frost. first, you know? <laughs> exactly. And, and that's what it, it all is. So, um, and for better or for worse, that's what's really served me in, mm-hmm. in my life. That's completely fascinating. Cause actually around that time to kind of date myself, I graduated high school in 2011 and oh, wow. yeah, so I'm 26 currently. And a lot of my friends joined the military, the Marines specifically, or in mm-hmm. 2012. So they, mm-hmm. I had like four or five of us that kind of all left around, you know, we were all 18 and then it was like, all right guys, see you later. I had one summer and now I'm, I'm going off to boot camp. And so I got to see how <laughs> that changed all of them. And through yes. the, the four years, especially the boot camp phase of it, where they come back and they are very much different people for a little while until they decompress. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it, it's putting a whole different layer of context around you know, someone with a lot more experience going into a situation like that. Did you, how did you fare like for yourself? Because when I feel like when you're younger, it would probably be a lot 
more i don't know i don't know and now i'm like jumping back and forth but it uh, it just seems like a, a easier to manage if you have a little bit more years under the belt to kind of deal with the the stress or at least partition it in a way it it absolutely does i mean as we were mentioning before you take a person in 2011 who's never been away from their phone or Mm -hmm. social media that is a big shock you take somebody who's 19 years old who has never lived away from home Mm -hmm. and you're throwing him into a bay of people that there's three you know there's another 200 people in there with you and there's absolutely no rest there's absolutely no privacy there's absolutely no relief uh, again these are a lot of stresses being thrown at people but they you have to do that because especially back then in the infantry they wanted to figure out quickly who was going to break yeah and the more people that they can break in in, in infantry school the, the less they have to worry about that person breaking under combat because in infantry school, people will still die. People died in my class because people broke or because mm-hmm. people didn't do the right thing. However, less men will die in combat if you can get them weeded out now than when they're in the heat of it, than when they're in Afghanistan in the mountains mm-hmm. without air support, right? Yeah. So that's why it's so important. And for me, like I said, I knew it was a, a game. You know, I'd lived some life. I lived on my own quite, you know, I was married. I was, I'd gone through quite a bit. So, and in the military, it was interesting because people looked at me either, they looked at me with a little bit of like, I don't want to say respect, but a little Mm -hmm. bit of reverence, or they looked at me like I was a person who completely screwed up my life (laughs) and I ran away to join the military as a last ditch effort. So there's no in between. (laughs) There was really no in between. And the beauty of it was both people were right. If you want to look at it that way. (laughs) So, um, but the, the nice thing was in the infantry, you pretty much get what you earn. And it's very much this idea of, okay, you, you beat everybody in combatives yesterday or you had a a perfect, you know, a shooting record yesterday. How good are you today? How good are you in this moment? And that's, I've always taken that and brought it into the civilian sector with me after I got out because that's very much a litmus test that is not going to forgive you if you're not able to, to make the cut. Mm -hmm. So after, after boot camp, where do you, where do you get either stationed or set off? I don't know if there was really active combat too much after that. 2011, there was, I was stationed in upstate New York at okay. 10th Mountain. So 10th Mountain at that time was the most deployed unit in the history of the military. Oh, wow. They're from, if you've ever heard of the, the movie or the book called Black Hawk Down, yep. that was the unit that I was with. And no, I was not with them at the time. Obviously, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And then, but everybody that was there, every soldier that was there, they were very much, they, they had that warrior ethos. They very much wanted to push themselves and even being pushed as hard as I was and feeling like I was, you know, stronger and more resolute after I left infantry school, when I got to my unit and I started to, to learn from men who would take what you were learning in the Ranger handbook and then saying, okay, this is what it looks like. This is what it really looks like in combat. And then giving you examples of what happened and showing you how these pitfalls and then understanding that if I don't have the right amount of ammo or if I'm not squared away or if I forget a piece of equipment that men die, mm-hmm. that was a very big reality check. And it's what I needed as well because I knew a lot about combat and a hand-to-hand component with mm-hmm. maybe one or two opponents at me, but war is a whole other thing. And if you go into this idea, Epictetus says you cannot teach a man something that he feels that he already knows. Mm-hmm. 
So I went in with a very empty cup, as they would say in Zen, and I just wanted to absorb as much of this knowledge as I possibly could. Plus, I read as much as I could about this sort of combat even before I went in, just so that I would have some sort of context, as opposed to just going there like a blank slate and then hoping that somebody could tell me exactly what to do because you you never know what's going to happen in the heat of battle. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting mindset you bring to these things, having this combination of Eastern Eastern philosophy that you were able to wrap into a lot of this very deliberate practice-based learning. It sounds like you, you had like a growth mindset, but even bef- way before the book even ever ap- appeared <laughs> on shelves. <laughs> even before Dweck was talking about it. And, yeah. and, and to me, to me, truth is truth, irrespective of, of source or mm-hmm. time frame. So to me, philosophy is about truth, but mm-hmm. the, the truth was the same from a Stoic standpoint, from a Zen standpoint, from a Tao standpoint. It's just that it was a regional component. Right. So Stoicism was in a certain part of the world, a certain part of that time frame. Taoism was feeling the same thing at a different time frame in a different part of the world, Zen, etc. And the reality is truth will rise to the top regardless. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of it. And that's why we have a lot of cliches and people are like, I've heard that before. Well, the reason why you hear it before is because it's true and it's said throughout the centuries and it will continue being said after we're gone. Mm -hmm. So if you hear something from somebody and they say, Hey, maybe you should meditate. Hey, maybe you should be intentional. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before, but you're not applying it. That's why you say, yeah, 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 I've heard it before because you're not applying. <laughs> that's, that's why you're like, yeah, I've heard that. It's like, no, hearing is not enough. Yeah. Bruce Lee says, knowing is not enough, we must act. Willing is not enough, we must do. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we have now where everybody's consuming content and reading books or listening to Audible or listening to podcasts or watching videos or buying courses, but very few people are executing. If you've ever heard Gary Vee say this, he says, I don't mind telling you exactly what I do to be successful because I know that 99% of you will not execute. (laughs) Now here's the other part that he doesn't say that last 1% that is willing to execute, do not have his experience, his network or his gross value or his gross like worth. Yep. So he's very secure in telling you what's going on because he knows that unless you're literally right next to him in in that area, you're never going to get where he's at. And, and that's, mm-hmm. he doesn't say it to, to be arrogant. He says it to be very straightforward and say, listen, I know that most of you want to execute. Yeah. So that's what a lot of it is. I mean, I, I, I resonate with that on so many levels as, as like part of doing this whole podcast experiment that is feeding curiosity is, is taking my experience or what I'm working on. And like the mindfulness is one of those things that I talk about a lot because as a type A type person, it's really hard to switch off or go to a lower gear and just give yourself, you know, a couple minutes or even 10 breaths and at a young age to kind of have the awareness of like, oh yeah, maybe it's okay to kind of chill (laughs) is one of those things that is always there. And it's also like the, the idea, like you're bringing up Gary V is, you know, the people we idolize today, you know, the Elon Musk or the, the Jeff Bezos of the world, there was a point in their lives that they were 22 and everything didn't seem as secure as it is today for them. And so part of it is to highlight that part of the story, at least for myself and for those around me who are, you know, in my same cohort, but also learn from, you know, the elders or the people who've lived it before us in a world that we can't even imagine anymore to some degree. I, I couldn't agree more with about the execution part. And it's kind of like if a lot of like the coaching or the mindset, broadly speaking stuff for me is like, if we can, help others be 1% better every day, 
then, you know, one year from now, you're 365% better than you were a year ago. <laughs> and, so, and so you pay dividends forward, not only for yourself, because you feel better and more fulfilled about who you are, but you also, everyone around you pays off. And it doesn't mean like you're doing it just for work, but it's like all of it, like your life, your family, your friends, your whoever, whatever it is that you wind up orienting towards. And so I couldn't agree more with it. Absolutely. And so to kind of get back to your story, so from boot camp, where does the story of your crucible start to shift? Like where the challenging or at least the reset. Yeah, the reboot begins. Yeah. So so I'm in upstate New York and that's twenty miles south of the Canadian border. We're right next to Lake, you know, we're close to Lake Ontario. And the winters up there, I know the Chicago winters are brutal, but mm -hmm. up there it's even more brutal because you get the mountain effect. You know, you get the winds, you get the, the lake effect, which is that humidity. So mm -hmm. there's more precipitation. There are, you know, it rains and snows many more days than it is nice and, and sunny, to say the least. So being out there, I, as soon as I hit the, as soon as I get to my station, they were like, get ready to pack your trash, we're leaving, which is their way of saying we're going to be deploying soon. Oh, wow. So here I am trying to just get as much information as I can and prepare myself mentally for this this the biggest challenge of my life and what happened was we were just training our guts out just training 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 you would go out in the field for two weeks which was meaning that you would be out away from civilization you're out in the middle of nowhere in the boonies and you're in warlike conditions so you're you know eating mres you're drinking you know whatever water you can kind of get out there and you're trying to get yourself prepared and invariably they, they pushed our deployment back but in the military if you have extra time to train, you do not let off the gas. You click it up a notch or two. Mm -hmm. And so we just kept pushing, kept pushing while well, they pushed the deployment back one more time. And then so in 2012, when I'm preparing to deploy, I wake up one morning and I cannot roll out of bed. My neck will articulate a little bit, but my body will not move. Whoa. And leading up to that, I had a lot of numbness in my hands and my feet, but I just attributed that to being out in the negative 20 degree weather. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're doing ruck marches with half your body weight. They would call them 50%. So you would do a 50% ruck march. So I was 180. So I had 90 pounds on my back. I've got all my plate mail body armor on. Mm -hmm. You're in your snow gear. It's negative 20 degrees. You're, you're on the snow. You're going 25 miles. They, you have a gas mask on. You're carrying your weapon. And then you're actually jogging. Wow. So that sounds extreme for a civilian, but honestly, that's what you have to do because mm -hmm. if I'm not in condition, when we get to Afghanistan, people die. Yeah. Period. So people that think that they're motivated to train, try to put that in there and, and see if that helps you get a little bit more out of your workout. Mm -hmm. But the idea was that's what we were doing. But when I went to roll out of bed that morning, I, at first I actually chuckled to myself. I was like, Oh, the old man's sore. Cause at that point I'm 39, I'm getting ready to 40 in a few days. Mm -hmm. And then I realize this is not just like a fluke. So the chiropractor in me kicks back and I immediately do a quick eval of myself. And I realize that this is either a temporary, you know, hiccup or this is a serious neurological situation. Yeah. And clearly it was. Luckily for me, there was somebody that was going to be knocking on my door that morning at 6 a.m. Anyway, they knock on the door. I yell through the door. And as you can tell, I'm not really the guy that jokes around. So if I'm mm -hmm. telling you that I can't move, 
and they're asking me, am I serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm serious. I'm using some choice language. They get the door <laughs> down, they grab me and uh, we're on our way to the hospital. And uh, it, it sounds silly. We're talking about mindset, but as a soldier, I just been given my own team. So I was a team leader now. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, even whenever they had me on the gurney and they are running down the, the, the hospital halls, just like you see in the movies where they're shining lights in your eyes and they're poking and prodding you and they're trying to, they're talking about you like you're not there. Um, in my mind, I'm like, I hope this doesn't take long. I hope they can just give me a shot or something because mm-hmm. I've got men dependent on me and we're ready to deploy soon. But they get down to the MRI. They roll me in. They tell me not to move. That was easy because I <laughs> couldn't move anyway. They, they put me into a holding room and then they come back a few minutes later and the nurse is like, well, we're going to go ahead and prep you. And I said, prep me for what? And she's like, for surgery, silly. And again, at that point, I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm acting in my mind. I thought that there was a way that I could negotiate it. I was like, do I really have to do this or whatever? She's like, listen, see how hard it is for you to breathe right now? It's because your diaphragm isn't firing because the part of your neck that actually controls your respiration is shut down. And that's why you can't move. So if we don't operate on you soon, you're going to die. So yeah, that was sort of a non-negotiable. So get down to the hospital um, operating room. There's about a dozen people outside the room. I literally say, wow, what are you guys doing here? They all kind of chuckle. And they say, we're here for you, which doesn't make me feel any better because now that means that if it takes 12 people to make sure that I'm going to make it through this thing, it's uh, it's going to be a, a long road. Mm-hmm. They explained to me that, you know, we have an anesthesiologist, we have a backup anesthesiologist, we have a nurse, we have a backup nurse, we have two primary surgeons, we have two, you know, potential surgeons if something happens, yada, 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 which makes me feel a little bit better. And the neurologist, I asked him what happened with my neck. Mm-hmm. And he's explaining to me in like civilian terms and I start speaking to him in like sort of chiropractic terms. I was like, so you're going to do a complete dissecting, you remove the debris and then you're going to completely ankylose C5 and C6. Is that correct with using <laughs> titanium? And he's like, how do you know that? And I was like, that's not really what we should be talking about right now. And, and I said, so what you're telling me is the disc ruptured, it exploded and it's pushing into my spinal cord. That's why I can't walk. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So as soon as they do all this and they remove everything, I should be able to walk again, right? And it's quiet and it's crickets. And that's not what you want to hear when you're getting ready to go under the knife. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, there's a lot of damage to your spine. And so now I'm starting to get scared and angry. And I'm like, what do you mean there's a lot of damage to my spine? Well, what does that mean? There's going to be, and the neurologist just like, well, you sound like, you know, what's going on. So you know that there's no way that you're going to be able to get through this without some sort of damage. So now I'm just livid and I'm yelling and everything. And they're like, listen, just try to calm down, which in the history of anybody being mad, calm down does not calm <laughs> people down. It's actually like putting gasoline on the fire. Yeah. And finally the nurse is like, listen, um, just put this over your, your mouth. I mean, we're going to put this gas mask over your mouth and just count from a hundred. And I just tried to, uh, you know, relax as much as I could. And it was like, yeah, I was on, it, it was almost like when you're, you're on a roller coaster and you're clicking up and you're at the very, very top and it's getting ready to come over the edge. That's how it feels, but it's your entire life. So go under. It's very cold and very dark for, it seems like a second. It seems like an eternity. I wake up in the ICU. I'm in a neck brace. So now what movement I do have is completely arrested. I can't even move my neck around and I'm still paralyzed. And the nurse sees me wake up and she's like, 
welcome back to the land of the living, Mr. Anderson. The surgeon comes in, says at the foot of the bed because I still can't move my neck, and says in a very congratulatory tone, well, you know, we lost you there for a minute. I didn't know what he meant. I'm like, how do you lose me? I'm a 180-pound guy in a big <laughs> bed. He says, no, you, you flatline. We lost you a few times. He said, and so I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. And he says, listen, the good news is you get to live to tell the tale. The bad news is this is what you're stuck with. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, again, just because you remember like in less than 12 hours, I've gone from going to bed sore thinking I'm going to wake up the next day and do squats and deadlifts mm-hmm. to waking up not able to move, trying to wrap my head around what's going on. And I just gone through the surgery. It felt like a bad dream. And I'm like, well, is there any, any chance? He said, listen, he says, if it was going to happen, it will happen today because as soon as we take the pressure off your spine, it should release all of those, that neurological interference. Mm-hmm. But he says, but can you move right now? And I was like, no. And he said, well, you know, I don't want to give you the, it, it would be irresponsible to give you hope is what he said. Mm-hmm. so he walks out so the soldier in me takes over and I'm like well he just said I died and I got over that so you know I should be able to, to get over this this not being able to walk thing so I was in classic stages of denial and I was in the ICU for a week and then once they come and get me and they take me back to my unit that's whenever it becomes very apparent that this is not just something that I can wish away and hope gets better mm-hmm so that was when I started going through and my birthday was that week also. So I turned 40 years old. So, you know, everybody else when they're 40, they're looking, looking at their life and they're looking at their, their family and they're happy and they've got this incredible career mm-hmm. and I'm, and I'm 40 years old and I've committed my life to one thing and that has been completely pulled out from underneath me. And I'm looking at myself thinking, what the hell do I do now? And that was the beginning of, I, I went through, most people when they're angry, they're, they're angry at, and they'll, they'll lash out at people around them, but they're actually angry at themselves for something, right? Mm-hmm. They're angry because they don't feel like they're actualizing their potential or whatever the case may be. So for me, I was angry at everyone around me, but I was mostly angry at myself because I realized that I had wasted a lot of time. I had wasted a lot of opportunity. I wasted a lot of talent. I had, they say you don't know what you got till it's gone, but that's not really true. See, we know what we have. It's just that we assume that we will always have it. And that's what I had done. So at 40 years old, I'm broke, divorced, bedridden, paralyzed, trying to figure out where my life went wrong. And that's when I'm starting to become very, very angry. And the, de- the definition of depression is anger that's directed inwards. Okay. So... I became incredibly depressed. As you can imagine, I was to a point where I was literally suicidal, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't even act on it because of my physicality. Yeah. So that's when I had to do a lot of really, really deep soul searching. And we were talking about philosophy, right? So in my mind, I have coming back all these little quips, all these little Zen things, all these stoic things, all this, you know, Taoism stuff. And frankly, it just sounds like a bunch of flowery BS because that stuff sounds great and it sounds fantastic on a quote or a meme or when you're reading it in a book. But when you're in it, you don't want to hear that. 
when you're in it, it's easy for you to say, oh yeah, it's easy for you to, to say, tell me that, it, you know, adversity is a gift or that, you know, any of this stuff, it's not what you want to hear. Yeah. So I went through a very dark phase of not wanting to talk to anybody, not wanting to, to do anything, obviously. They would prop me up in the bed and turn on Netflix and then they would just leave me and then come, you know, do what they could for me. Eventually I get to the point where I was like, just leave the light off and turn the, I don't want the TV on because I knew that I had to go inside my mind to figure this out. So what I wanted more than anything was to recover physically. Yeah. But in order to get to that place, I didn't think that was going to happen. So I let go of that expectation. I let go of that hope. And instead I thought, well, if this is all I'm left with, what can I do right now in my situation? What choices can I make? What decisions can I have that will allow me to at least not be miserable and depressed through the rest of my life? Because it, it, mori, right? We always talk about that knowing that we're going to die, mm-hmm. but it's easy to say that because when you're dead, you don't know you're dead and you don't get to feel the pain of it. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you're 40 years old and you think that you have another 40 years of your life, bedridden that's a whole other dimension of wondering what do you do so i say it in my book in my tedx talk but i tell people i'm like because people are asking you know how do i try to get more perspective or how do i get inspiration well all that stuff is a bunch of flowery bs but the reality is if you want to know what you really want to do with your life ask yourself if you woke up tomorrow paralyzed from the neck down what would you wish you would have accomplished with your time? Mm-hmm. And that will give you perspective like nothing else can. And that was a question that changed my life. So for me, lying there wondering what I was going to do was difficult. And I eventually got to a place where there was so much anger in me, I had to find something to counteract it. For most people, the opposite of anger is love. Mm-hmm. but frankly, there was not a love, not a lot of love around me at that time. So I had to find the next best thing. And for me, that was gratitude. And I know what you're thinking. Everybody talks about gratitude. It's a buzzword. Everybody has magical journals and rainbows <laughs> and butterflies and unicorns. And the reality is most people that are, that say that they have gratitude are doing it wrong. Period they go through and they think that they are being grateful, but what they're doing is they're basically, they have almost like a life Christmas list and they're being thankful to whomever about all the good stuff that's happened to them. Mm -hmm. But gratitude doesn't work like that. Gratitude is like love. If you love somebody or you love something unconditionally, you will always love them irrespective of what they do say, even if it's something you don't like or you're upset about, you will still love them. Gratitude is the same way. We have to have this unconditional gratitude. We have to be able to be just as happy about winning the lottery as we are for the person that cuts us off in traffic and gives us a finger. Mm-hmm. And for most people, they just go through and cherry pick the things they like, agreeable for only those things. But that's not how real gratitude is. You have to have 360 degrees of gratitude and be able to see the opportunity within the hardship. Yeah. And that's what happens. So if you have 50% of your day, let's say just for easy math, mm-hmm. let's say the half of your day you're grateful for, but let's say the other half of your day you thought was sucked. If you spend your entire life like that, that means there's literally half of your life that you could have been exploring that hardship. You could have been exploring that opportunity to learn. You could have been exploring that thing that was difficult 
that could have made you so much stronger. Yeah. That could have exponentially made you better. That could have been the catalyst to make you change into the person who could see that as opportunity. And now all of a sudden your life is that much better. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so difficult. And that's why I talk about adversity being a gift because if you do not have that mentality, it fixed to your mind right now when things are easy, when you actually face the hardship, it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's like hoping that you're going to learn how to swim before you fall in the water. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I, I wish I learned how to swim <laughs> it's too late now. Yeah. That's the idea we have to have that affixed to us. So for me, I started being grateful and I had to find something to be grateful for, but what am I going to be grateful for? I'm lying in a bed. I can't move. So the Zen notion is this. They say, take yourself out of the equation to see the truth and what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that happens is because for every one of us, if we're in something really deep and we're into it really close, emotions assassinate the truth. So we get stuck in that. So for me, I ask myself, okay, did anybody benefit from me being injured? And then I realized, okay, in my mind, this injury would have happened irrespective of where I was in the world. So whether I was in the mountains of Afghanistan or in the United States, this would have happened. Mm -hmm. So for every one man who was injured in combat, it takes two men to pull him to safety. So if I'd have been overseas deployed, that means I would have compromised my team. That means my squad would have been compromised. That means that I would have had another squad that had to cover down, another battalion would have had to come through. There would have been a Chinook helicopter that would have had to fly into a hot zone probably to come get me. And all there were probably 30 other people whose lives would have been put in harm's way. And when I thought of it like that, it made me realize, wow, you know, I'm lucky. Not that I'm lucky, but I'm just grateful that nobody else got hurt in the process. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my life, that's when I had genuine, unconditional 360 gratitude in 40 years of existence on this mortal coil. Mm -hmm. And once I had that, I just broke down like I did at my my great uncle's funeral. I was truly just grateful. I was crying. I was happy about everything. And then I just literally applied that unconditional gratitude to everything from the bed that I may never get out of to the room that I may never leave. Mm -hmm. And a week after having that genuine hundred percent commitment to gratitude, I started getting a little bit of feeling back in my left hand. No, it wasn't much, mm-hmm. but it was more than what I had. And that was the beginning of a long road of physical therapy, occupational therapy, lots of starts and stops, but that's what allowed me to really get some of that physicality back. And eventually I got to a place where, and at first when it happened, I tried to tell a nurse about it. And of course, right when she's in there, I can't reproduce the emotion. Right? <laughs> so they still didn't believe me for a while. And a lot of times there's like phantom movement or phantom pain. Yeah. But um, eventually they saw, it was like, Oh, okay. And that's when they started giving me just a little bit to see what my body would do. And every time, even if it was something small, like even if my, it was my left hand and my right hand, even if it, that's all I got back, I was still grateful because I was better off than where I was earlier. So everybody that talks about gratitude, they're doing it in a half-assed manner at best. So when I, when I work with clients, when I'm talking to people, they say, oh, I write down all the stuff I'm grateful for. I was like, tell you what, write down the stuff that pisses you off. <laughs> write down the thing that made you mad today. Write down the thing that you were not grateful for. 
and think about it the next day mm-hmm. and ask yourself, where was the opportunity? Where was the beauty? Where was the lesson in that? And when they can do that and they step away from it and they have a little bit of space, it's easier for them to be very objective about what it is. Again, the emotion no longer assassinates the truth because you're away from that emotion. So again, we talk about stoicism, that that's what it is. You control what is controllable and that is it. You have no qualms. You have no delusions of what else controllable. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that we can control is us, our decisions and our mentality about the situation. Victor Frankl famously says what? Between stimulus and response, <laughs> there is a, there is a gap, right? Yep. And within that gap is everything. So for me, that's what it was. When I, 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 I my last keynote, I talked about this. There is an event. That event, we, we assign meaning to that event. That event evokes emotion within us after we decide. That emotion decides, goes into a cascade of hormones, thoughts, and actions lots of times. Mm-hmm. So if I'm able to reframe my adversity and say this is not no longer a curse, this is a gift, that literally changed my life. So if you're able to reframe whatever's going on and step back from it and say, what does this really mean? Lots of times it's what? Lack of communication. It's ill intent. It's the fact that maybe we didn't understand what that person meant. When somebody sends you a text, you can't always tell what context is or an email or even whenever they're, they're short because they're tired or they're sleep deprived. So there's so much that can go into that. So from the adversity, I have learned that my empathy is increased exponentially Mm -hmm that my gratitude is literally off the charts now. And that all that comes down to understanding the human animal and what our natural tendencies are. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, you know, I've trained a lot of these different things and, you know, being gratitude, being one of those things or optimism even, and it does get flowery to some degree where it's like, of course it sounds good when everything's going right. You know, there's sunshine and rainbows around and it's like, I'm being That's grateful it. today. But when, mm-hmm. you know, shit hits the fan for, for lack of a better term, it's, yeah. that's when you're really tested by these things or at least what you're really made of. Like, can you show up? And, and one of the things that really kind of comes to me is like, you know, did you ever turn that gratitude on yourself? Like give yourself any like gratitude? Because I think, in those moments, it's really easy, or at least in general, a lot of people, you know, say loathsome things to themselves that they'd never say to any other living human being. Oh yeah. There's my internal dialogue. If that person were in front of me, I would have spit on them. There's no way I would have put up with that kind of right. negative bullshit. It, but that's sort of the nature of the beast. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a delicate, you know, back and forth because again, there, there's a point where, if you're not able to exercise that sort of discipline necessary mm-hmm. and you just kind of go with what you feel, of course, you're just going to eat a bunch of bad food, sit on your ass and consume a bunch of, you know, content, not doing anything with it. Uh, at the same time, we have to understand the Taoists have a saying, they say that if you continually sharpen the blade, it goes blunt. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And that's, and that's, that's a, right. Everybody's like talking about being sharp. Yeah. It, just like at the gym or just like meditation. I mean, meditation is to the, is to the mind what, what fasting is to the body mm-hmm. or the same thing with recovery. If I work out as hard as I possibly can, you know, every single day and I'm running myself into the ground and I know what that's like because I was in the military. That's what, we, that's what my job was. Your recovery is compromised mm-hmm. and therefore because you're not allowing yourself the chance to get stronger, what do you have to do? You get weaker. Things start breaking on you. 
And clearly I'm an example of that. I've always found it interesting because so many people talk about push, push, push and go, go, go. Yet those people have never pushed themselves to a point where they actually break. So even though they're preaching this really awesome game, they don't know what it is because they've never done it. Yeah. So when I'm saying it, I can tell you unequivocally from experience, there is absolutely a time to push and I demand a lot from myself and from the people that I work with, from my clients, from the companies, everything. But if all you have is one gear and that gear doesn't work, if I'm talking to somebody, if I'm coaching somebody and I'm like, hey, you need to do this, and all of a sudden that stops working, yeah. what do I do now? Do I just yell at them more? I yell at them louder? No, that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. I have to have these other capacities. I have to be multifaceted. I have to see what works on this person and somebody else. If I am talking to a CEO and I'm talking to his company and he has... 10 C-suite executives and half of them really like what I'm saying. The other half is like, man, this guy's pretty extreme. And I have to be able to, to not only have another gear, but I also have to be smart enough to sense that even before it happens. So that instead of creating a divide, I'm creating unity and I'm creating this vision that we're all following towards. And that's the part of leadership that nobody talks about. People say, Oh, lead by example and have communication and build trust. Well, what happens when there's no communication? Mm-hmm. what happens when there's no trust what happens when you can't lead by example or you're frankly not willing to because you don't have the capacity that's what leadership is that's what lead- people don't talk about because it's hard because it's messy because leading people and messy so it doesn't look good on a book it doesn't look good on a, a meme but that's why so many people can get away with having this very gross overarching generalization about what you should do as a leader. And then all of a sudden they, they leave and that's it. And now you have these people in this company that is not fresh. Chances are any company that I've gone to talk to, there's all kinds of history between a person who's in a leadership position and the people that are below them. Sometimes there's something as, something as complex as one that was in that position now that no longer are people that have been in relationships and no longer are mm-hmm. people that have come from other companies that have been merged and they, now all of a sudden they're not sure where they stand. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of ambiguity. So as a leader, our job is to go through and bring order to chaos, but do it in a way where everybody feels respected, valued and heard. Mm-hmm. And again, that's, and that's why it's so difficult. So like I say, I, and I didn't mean to go on a tangent there, but that's exactly, but that's where this stuff is applied. Yeah. I mean, th- this is where if you can apply philosophy and apply, apply concepts, you can literally change the world. Yeah. But if you're not willing to do it and you're not willing to do the work, then you just sound like everybody else out there on social media that's trying to, you know, be a life coach. Yeah. I had some fluffy quotes and, you know, say here, just do these 10 things. Right. I, I, I always get annoyed about these little hacky things like do these five things or, you know, five things to improve your happiness. It's like if, if it was as simple as adding a list of do these five things and you'll be like perfect or whatever, like, then everyone would be doing them already. Like, I I think it's all about like having a framework of like, here's how to do these things. Right. And you do them as best you can. It it reminds me of uh, Benjamin Franklin where he had his like, you know, 13 virtues and Mm -hmm. he would pick one a month to do and then like cycle through them because the idea is that eventually, like if you're focusing on one thing, like you were alluding to in the beginning, you, you let your relationship falter because you're focusing on your studies And when you focus on one thing too long, other things are going to suffer. So you're going to have to backpedal and go fix those other things, you know, fix the cracks, so to speak. 
and continually redo that all over like forever. And that's the whole goal is like, there's no, there's no such thing as done because you're no, always going to be building upon what you were doing previously. Well, hopefully you are and hopefully you're learning and hopefully you're questioning yourself in the process too. Right. There are a lot of people that are 25 years old that will live that same existence until they die mm-hmm. because they don't want to push because they just want to have like this mindless, you know, consumption ideal, which is okay. But you and I, you know, are, are big f- fans of Tim Ferriss and mm-hmm. his, his ex- all the stuff that he's written has like literally changed my life as well. But mm-hmm. He, he is very much of that, the same opinion, like what we're, we're both talking about this idea of like, listen, you know, he interviews all these people and he goes through and he like deconstructs what they do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he does every single one of them. There's some, Bruce Lee has an amazing philosophy in Jeet Kune Do. I'm an instructor under Bruce Lee's protege. His name's Guru Gannon Osanto. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Lee's philosophy about Jeet Kune Do is this. He says, absorb what is useful, discard what is useless. Mm-hmm. And then add what is specifically your own. Yeah. And in my mind, that is like not only an incredible formula for an entrepreneur, but for life in general, because each one of us is a unique individual. Each one of us is different. Each one of us has our own attributes, mm-hmm. our own experiences, and therefore our own prejudices, whether we're aware of that or not. So if we go into something with this, this clouded idea or this outcome in mind, it will probably blind us to what's really going on or taint what the, the actual experience could be mm-hmm. if we were able to just go into it again with an empty cup, with an empty vessel, a clean slate, however you want to look at it, yeah, to, to see it for what it is and not for what we hope it will be. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's like, for me, the, the idea of, you know, synthesizing is where I would call that, you know, Bruce Lee puts it way more poetically, but it's always about whatever you take in, and someone on this podcast who was a friend of mine, he, he wound up saying, you know, anything, any information you take in, there's a, you know, like if it's a book you read or listen to, there's a, there's a chapter of that book that is unwritten and it's the, what you have to say about that book or what, what you took away from that book and what would you would explain to other people if you were recommending it to them. And I, and I really thought that was a really powerful thing because it's not about, you know, it, there is a message in these books, but a lot of times, like you're saying, you become these passive consumptors of things yes. and and we just take it for granted but then if we stop and think about like what it is that i'm learning and or did it actually sink in deeper than you know the first two inches and and can i actually explain this to some degree or another and i think that's where people kind of get lost and i i hope that in general it's it seems like you're saying you know with like having these groups like tim ferris's and others there's like this newer paradigm shift of people who want to go deeper, who want the nuance or who want to build, not just like following the leader, so to speak, but also like, Hey, here's the things that I'm doing because I've learned all this thing through these other sources. It's like this interconnected web of like, almost like the idealized version of the internet, or at least in the theory of it when it was being built. And it's fascinating to see this, how it's always this cross pollination of ideas. I think that's what really fascinates me most about like because it's so easy to caught up in the negative spirals of the social media world as we see it today but there's also like these hidden enclaves as i like to think of them almost and it's it's really cool to see how this is really shifting in in some ways there absolutely is that and it's you know that that makes me optimistic in that way and again i mean i i forgot who said it but they were saying essentially that 
basically if if more information were the answer with the internet now for example mm-hmm. everybody would have a six pack abs <laughs> be a multi billionaire and be completely enlightened yeah. and we know that is we know that to not be the case so the the thing that i'm very much about is it, to me here's what happens information that you consume that you do not act upon mm-hmm. is the same as ignorance mm-hmm. you might as well not even have learned it if you don't put anything with it, if you don't put it into play in some way shape or form so that's why i'm always about doing the work putting it into play, figuring out what it is. So if you listen to us and it sounds great, that's fantastic. Write one thing down that really struck you mm-hmm. and then try to execute on that. And the execution is always more difficult than just hearing it. And again, it's much more messy than what it sounds like when you hear somebody say, oh, well, I had this idea and then I just fell into this and then I mm-hmm. did this and I built this team and now I've got a, you know $200 million worth of sales this year. Well, that, that took a while and there's a lot of falling down yeah. and everybody now we, they want to see the person that that goes, they want to see the end result. They don't want to see the person who was on the ground falling. <laughs> they don't want to see the, again, we see, you know, Bezos where he's in his garage, you yep. know, with Amazon or Bill Gates or anything, but everybody started with zero followers. Everybody started without anybody downloading their their podcast. Everybody started, everybody put their book, like I put my book out there and I, I had a, you know, I already had a, a tribe kind of built, but at the same time, you don't know what's happening. Yep. Like you send in your final manuscript and then you just hope that you did the best that you could with the amount of time that you had. Mm-hmm. And you hope that somebody actually benefits from it because you spent over a year of your life bleeding onto a page, <laughs> hoping that somebody will actually take this and run with it. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, then it, you beat yourself up and you wonder and you question. And, and Tim's talked about this, you know, Pressfield's talked about this, Stephen Pressfield's talked yeah. about this so many times and it's, it's so true. And that's what really goes on with those things. So if you're listening to us right now and you want to create a blog or a podcast or write a book or whatever it is, understand that just like meditation, it's tough. It's a practice. I've got people that, you know, clients or even friends that are saying, Hey, I'm trying to meditate. But every time I try to sit down, it's like, I can't get my mind to shut off. I was like, Hey, I got a little secret for you. Everybody does that. That happens to everyone. (laughs) And that monkey mind is going to be there for some people for, you know, a few minutes, some people, the entire session, but the reality is it is a practice. So the intention of breathing for two or three seconds and then losing focus on your breath and then coming back to being present with your breath is the very definition of meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's a practice. And just like anything that we practice, you're going to get good days. You're going to get bad days, but you have to be very, very specific because you have to understand that practice does not make perfect. It makes permanent. Mm -hmm. So be careful about what you get good at because you may get good at something that may not serve you or in the martial arts, if you're practicing something that looks good and beautiful and flowery, but you try to defend yourself with it and you get yourself or somebody else killed. That's when you have to ask yourself, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you practicing it? And then how can I apply this to this part of my life, to this facet of what I'm doing? Absolutely. I, I, I never really got into like physicality, like sports and stuff like that, but you were into it in the beginning. And now that I'm older, I've, I've, that was one of the things that really drew me initially. It was like this combination of like the, what, when you train one, like what affects one affects the other kind of idea where oh yeah, I was always very intellectual when I would read and I would be very, at least when I was younger, but I always kind of just sequestered this idea of being physical or athletic in any way and said, Nope, that's not a thing that I could ever be. And then somehow 
a seed was planted and my friends was like, you should start working out. You'll enjoy it. And I made excuses until somehow I did it. And I wound up doing that. And that was like five, six years ago at this point. And since then it's really opened all these doors and it's why I'm even, I think to some degree, why I even do what I do today with all of this stuff. (laughs) And it's such a strange thing that when you start training, like inadvertently training the body also sharpened my mind and in many, many ways, because I've gotten into all of this other aspects of it. And that's kind of funny that I'm thinking about it now, like Tim Ferriss, he like some of the first podcasts I would listen to were the like the athletics like the gymnastics coaches or the mm. any of those kind of ones first and then all of a sudden it started transitioning into the more health aspects because you can't talk about just like working out routines without talking about the health aspects of it uh, on top of that with like nutrition diet and then psychology starts to get wrapped up into there too because it's like get out of the mind and into the body and all of that and it it's fascinating the more i like look at these ideas it's how how much there's so much interconnection is that when you start you know, turning, tuning one knob, it tunes so many others. And just the amount of kind of just having to commit to something first, just like to, you have to be before you can become. And it's, I know that sounds very Zen like, and, but that's like, you have to choose to be a person who works out before you are the person that works out. Yeah, that's, that's exactly (laughs) it. And, and that's what the reality is. There's, in all these things that there is the trifecta it's the the physicality is the mentality and then it's like the, the stuff that we put into our body mm-hmm. because they are all connected and that's and again you you tune one thing and the other things improve yeah if i teach you if i teach you a punch mm-hmm. i teach you a single punch if you learn that but if i teach you a concept i teach you a thousand punches mm-hmm and that's how all these things come together. So there will be some people that may have natural attributes from a physical component. So of course they're going to want to go into that aspect, but then the, the mentality is tough for them. You have a person like you were describing, you were very cerebral initially, yet you understood that there was uh, another side of the coin that was not being polished. Mm-hmm. They could have been. And then you saw that once you had this one area that was very strong, the physicality allowed you to better not only appreciate that, but but the intellect allowed you to get better with the physicality as well. So yeah. it is all together. And if we look at anybody through antiquity, every like a Renaissance man, they are literally multifaceted. Yeah. If, if you look at the samurai, they were the people that could kill you by just drawing their blade in Iedo, yet they could still write poetry. Mm-hmm. They could do a tea ceremony. They could <laughs> arrange flowers. And they would literally have a, a burial ceremony every time they would go on campaign to allow them to have Mushin, no mind, so that wow. whenever they went into combat, there was zero hesitation. That's awesome. Yeah. And people don't even, and people don't see it, but yet it's everywhere. If you pay attention, history repeats itself. And there's a reason, like I said, because the truth does not lie. It is always there. And unless we're trying to put our fingers in our ears intellectually and be cowardice about it, we will see it. And once it continues repeating, it is our peril to ignore it. Absolutely. And I want to be respectful of your time. We're just over an hour and I think we could, go on for many, many hours, <laughs> just, just to given the, the momentum we have in this conversation. So I would like to get into some like more targeted questions for, you know, overarching. I think we've really done this for the entire thing though, but you know, any, any of you like your favorite books or most gifted books? And yes, this is stolen from Tim Ferriss, but I love talking about books. Uh, everything is, <laughs> everything is stolen from Tim Ferriss. I, <laughs> 
I was going to write an article that says, this is why I hate Tim Ferriss, because every time I would think I would have something unique or different, he would either have already written about it or the <laughs> next person on his podcast is like, son of a bitch. Right? So, but that's, that's a good problem to have. And mm-hmm. uh, I see that in Jess, we both loved him and he's helping so many people and very honored to have get to, you know, learn from him the way we have. Mm-hmm. Having said that, there are many books. I'll, I'll just say two. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned, uh, and again, all of Tim Ferriss's work is amazing, but the books that I give people is, the, the first one I give everybody is, especially if they're creative or they're an entrepreneur, is by Stephen Pressfield, is called The War of Art. Mm-hmm. Those that have not read it, it's essentially him explaining to you, I talk about adversity and I capitalize it with an A, he talks about this force called resistance and he has a large R with it. He talks about it in that book. He talks about it in going pro and do the work, but it all talks about just like I was saying with meditation that everything, like when I would sit down to write, it was torturous in many ways. It wasn't as if I just turned, you know, open up my computer and all these beautiful ideas just flowed from me like a, you know, like a well, <laughs> it didn't, doesn't happen like that. It is very much about writing something down, bringing it the next day, thinking that it's complete and total shit, mm-hmm. and then wanting to go through and try to do it again. And that's part of the process. That's what makes you a better writer, reader, speaker, everything. So that's one of the books. Sorry, didn't, didn't mean I got a tangent on that. The second book that I would recommend to people, which a lot of people are not familiar with, is called Thick Face Black Heart by Chen and Chu. And it was based on the 1911 Chinese book called Thick, Thick Black Theory. Okay. And that book was immediately banned by the Chinese government when it came out. Well, so that should show you how impressive and powerful and, you know, just straightforward that that book is. They were talking about the, the, the short synopsis is thick face, black heart. Mm-hmm. They meant thick face as if like you had thick skin, okay. like you were resilient, like that was your shield. And the black heart is your commitment. So you are committed to something so much that there is no longer any color inside that paradigm. And it is completely black because you're completely committed to this idea. So the thick face was like the shield and the black heart was like the spear, but it's a, it's a beautiful book. It's not heard as often very much now, but it's a book that could, I think help you. Wow. Yeah, I'm definitely have to check that one out. I, any book I think that gets banned from anywhere is that's worth, you got to read it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's one of the things I talk about a lot about having the freedom to speak, right? Like where people where two, you know, private individuals able to have a conversation and then put it out onto the world and basically almost anyone can hear it after this once we put it out. And yeah. I think that's like one of the most important things because Throughout history, people got killed over what they said or wrote and to control opinions or, you know, hearts and minds, so to speak. So I think, you know, when anything is supposedly ostracized or controlled, it is worth reading because there's something in there that scared somebody. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And, um, so the last question I like to end with, because it is within my age bracket, but anyone who is, you know, a smart driven college age person, either entering the real world or, you know, maybe finishing high school, any advice, you know, you had a long winding path, you know, you're, I guess the, the crucible you had for your life didn't happen until your middle thirties. And, you know, a lot of people <laughs> pretend like you should have it figured out by the time you're 22. And I was just not even close to finishing my degree at 22. <laughs> yeah. It took me uh, 40 some odd years to be an overnight success. So, right. so um, the thing that I would say is 
And I've had this question before because people would say, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? The thing is, even if I had given myself that advice, I wouldn't have listened to it. So, but the advice that I would give people now is, and it, it may sound cliche in some ways, but there is something in you. There's like a, a tone or a resonance or a truth here right now. And as you get older, it will get covered up and layered and buried by other things. And to try to, to be present, to try to be at one with yourself and the things around you through meditation, through physicality, through, you know, cognitive dissonance, just to ask yourself why you believe what you believe. Those will be ways for you to home back into that. But that thing, that sound, that resonance never gets louder. It's at one volume. Mm -hmm. So listen to what that is for you. So there will be a lot of questions. There'll be a lot of experiences in your life, but ultimately you can probably ask yourself, this is like the big, it's like a filter. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing something and it just doesn't feel right, there's probably a reason. And now pull on that thread, figure out why. Is it not feel right because it's going to be a lot of work? Well, maybe that's a you problem and not the actual, you know, subject's problem. If it doesn't feel right because you feel like you're compromising your integrity for it, then don't do it. There's so many options now. As I was saying, like with my father, his idea was more education. But frankly, you can literally be 17 years old in high school. If you have a good idea and you're driven, you can create some sort of business around that. Mm -hmm. And we're finding now that people are staying at jobs, you know, less than seven years. So understand that there are going to be many iterations of who and what you are and that you have to be very, very resolute with your work ethic to, to see something through. You have to do what we've been talking about this entire time. You have to see adversity as a gift because that will shine a lightness on the areas that you're blind to. And then you also have to be aware of what's really important to you and make those things a priorities because if everything's a priority in your life, then nothing is a priority in your life. And those would be the three things I would just tell people. Awesome. I couldn't, it, I, you can't see me, but I was nodding the whole time. Is <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have said it any better. And I think that's a perfect note to end this first conversation on. And I really, again, appreciate you making the time to, to do this on one short notice and with very little understanding of who I am, because I'm just, you know, a, someone who just does this because they just feel compelled to do it. Like you, like you were saying, like you just, if you feel like you want to do something, then you start doing it. And that's what this has been that's all it. about for me. So that's exactly it. And th that's what it is. I mean, the hard part is that just getting started and mm -hmm. everybody wants to know this answer, but the, the answer that you're, you're searching for is found in the adversity that you're avoiding right now. Mm-hmm. So if that is, like you said, starting a podcast, well, how do I, you're asking all these questions, start the podcast and you'll figure it out as you go along. <laughs> if you're trying to build a business and have a decent business plan, then go with that. And mm -hmm. guess what? You'll figure it out as you go along. If you, if you own a business, but you don't like doing sales and you can't understand why you're not getting customers, well, you don't like doing sales. So either hire somebody or bite the bullet and figure out how to get it done. But that's where it is. Everybody wants to have an excuse not to get something done. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the answer is found within the process itself. Absolutely. Thank you. Of course. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, subscribe, 
go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show.